Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We'll be in the first 12 verses, Mark 2. If you're visiting Christ Church today, we're glad you're with us. My name's Mark, and uh, I'm one of the ministers here, and so we're glad you joined us. We're in the third week of a series through the Gospel of Mark called Relentless Pursuit. The title of this series is based on Jesus' design and his purpose of coming to reveal who he was, and once he had that established, to head toward the cross and provide for us what we needed. And so we've been looking at this uh, for three weeks now, and I want to remind you where we were a week ago. In chapter 1, uh, we learned that what Mark is pointing out to us is that Jesus' identity was established. When he was baptized, his father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and uh, John the baptizer also identified him as this is the lamb who's sent to be slain. And by identifying them, they're using messianic uh, terms to show us who he was. And then Jesus showed us his authority because immediately he was sent to be tempted in the wilderness and he used the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's word to stand up to sin and say no. And he showed his authority over all temptations and sin. And then thirdly, he showed his plan. He started calling people to follow him and that he would teach them how to be fishers of men. In other words, he would teach them how to do what he was doing by entering people into his kingdom. So we learned his identity we learned his authority, and we learned his plan or his purpose. So today, we're going to talk in chapter 2 about an incident that Mark shares. But before we do that, we're going to take a little pop quiz. You don't have to uh, take out a piece of paper, number one or two, but I'm going to ask you two questions, and I want you to contemplate the answer. The first question is this. What is the greatest benefit that Christianity brings to the world? What is the greatest benefit that Christianity brings into our world? There are some biblical answers, but the reason I use the word greatest is because I want to show significance of one over the other. You may say that Christianity identifies our purpose in life, and that would be correct, but I don't know that it would be the greatest. You might say that it gives us an ethical approach to life. It teaches me how to live well and allow others to live well together in community, and that would be correct. I'm not sure it's the greatest. You may say to me that it gives me a sense of peace and tranquility. It allows me to live life comfortably knowing I'm, a, I'm good with God. And I would say that's a great benefit. I don't know it's the greatest. If I may answer my own question, I would pose this. The greatest need of all mankind is to escape the wrath of God because of our sin. It's the greatest need for all people is to overcome sin. So I'm going to ask you the second question. That first one is awkward. We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about sin. It's difficult to call anything a sin today in our culture because then you're judged and, you know, you have a bias and you're ignorant and you can be in trouble. So let me ask you another question that's really a light question. What sends people to hell? See, the happy part of the sermon's about over, so just hold on, okay? (laughs) What is our greatest need and what sends people to hell? But before you answer that question, be careful. What sends people to hell? Some people may say God, but let's correct that. That's inaccurate. God doesn't send people to hell. People chose hell. And God will simply draw you out of it, not send you into it. And some people may say it's sin. The reason we go to hell is sin. And I'm going to say that's partially correct. The actual answer is what sends people to hell is unforgiven sin. 
The difference between those who will be with God in his new kingdom and those that will not be with God in the kingdom is about unforgiven sin, pure and simple. That's why the greatest need was for a savior. So he sent Jesus. And if we keep that construct in mind, as we go forward, we're going to be much more able to interpret the gospel that Mark presents because Jesus came to show us he was the son of God and to save us from our sins by dying on the cross. He met our greatest need. But I want to defend God for a moment. I don't know that I have to in this audience, but for some of you shaken by the reality, and, and let's be honest, there are people today, Christian people, that are questioning whether or not there is a hell. And, and I'll tell you, I believe in hell for one simple reason. Jesus did. And Jesus talked about it. He taught about it. He challenged people to avoid it. So no matter what the, the current minds want to say today, I'm going to rely on Jesus' knowledge over mine every day. So when we look at this, I want you to understand that we don't have a God who relishes hell and can't wait to use it against us. In fact, my Bible teaches me that my God is compassionate, kind, loving, and gracious. Listen to what our Bible says about him. Isaiah chapter 43, God said, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. This is God's joy, is to, to fix us from our brokenness. In Acts 13, preaching, they said, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So there we have the lens in which we look at this passage today. Our greatest need was to be reconciled back to God because of the sin that has separated us from him. And we can't do that on our own, so God sent a Savior. Michael DeFazio, when he presented the overview of who, who the Gospel of Mark was written to and why it was written and by who it was written, he told us, remember, it's a story. Read it like the story Mark wrote, the story of a real man named Jesus and what he did and why he did it. And every time we go through this, we have to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? What is being revealed about him? So in light of the story concept, I want to tell you that we're going to go, just like you would through any story, there is a setting of the story, there's the action within the story, and the reaction of the people in the story. That's what every story is geared on, basic principle. You write a story, this is where it took place, this is what happened, and this is the result of what happened. So that's going to be our outline this morning. So let's begin. Mark chapter 2, the setting. Verse 1. A few days later. Because this is a story, we have to remember that Mark is now alluding to something that happened previous, which is affecting this. Because we couldn't cover all of chapter 1 last week, let me tell you what chapter 1's about, so you'll understand a few days later. Jesus was baptized, God identified who he was. He was sent into a, a trial and temptation in the wilderness, he overcame that by the power of God. He called disciples, then he went into a synagogue and he preached. And in that synagogue, there was a man who was demon-possessed, who stood up and made a scene, and Jesus cast the demon out of him. And then Jesus went to Peter's house for rest and food that evening, and Peter's mother-in-law was deathly sick, and Jesus healed her. And then Jesus left town and went to Galilee. And in Galilee, a leper came to him. This leper is an amazing guy. I love this story. The leper walks up to Jesus and says, If you were willing, you could heal me. And Jesus said, I am willing, and you're right, you're healed. And the leper walked away healed because Jesus, he knew who Jesus was. And then Mark says in chapter 2, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. There weren't 5,000 square foot homes in Jesus' day. This tiny little domicile 
was packed full of people who wanted Jesus. They wanted to be near Jesus. They wanted to be around Jesus. And they were pressing in on him. There was a large group gathered. That's the scene. In fact, it's very common that wherever Jesus went, he couldn't do what he came to do because the crowds were so big and pressed in on him that he couldn't go about his business. In fact, back in chapter 1, Mark says in verse 38, quoting Jesus, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. If you remember last week in Mark chapter 1, Jesus said, He came that he might say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is available. The kingdom of heaven is here. That's what Jesus came to do, is to let us all know that that distance between us and God has been corrected, and that the kingdom of God is here if we want to enter into it by allowing our sins to be cleansed. And Jesus said, with all of these people packing around looking for miracles, I can't do what I came to do. Because yes, Jesus healed, but Jesus did not come to heal. He came to save. And in that is a truth. And then Mark does something with words. Mark uses some words very significantly in his story. One word I want to point out today is the word crowds. When, when Mark identifies the crowds were gathered around Jesus, he does this at least six times that I'm aware of to this point in my study. At least six times he identifies there was a crowd around Jesus. But don't mistake crowd for followers. There's a distinction there that we need to remember. Just because they were in the crowd didn't mean they were disciples. Mark uses a different uh, terminology when he's identifying the disciples of Jesus. So here's my point to us today in 2015. Being a part of the crowd does not make you a disciple even at church. You can come to church, you can attend church moments, but that doesn't mean you're following him. It just may mean you're following the crowd. Some crowds gather because they want Jesus to do something. That doesn't make them disciples. Even if you believe he can do it, doesn't make you a follower. Because followers must go through suffering and crucifixion and denial, not just simply the entertaining part of being a part of the crowd. And so Mark points out that the Pharisees were in there. The scribes were in there. His critics were in there. So the word crowd doesn't mean disciple. That's the setting. A mixed room, a full house, a packed crowd, a tired Savior. This is the scene. Now let's go to the action. What happened? Verse 3. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic. They brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. This is the only time in all of Mark's story does he talk about Jesus healing a crippled person. I don't know what the significance of that is, but there has to be something there because he uses this moment. And verse 4, since they could not get to him to Jesus because of the crowd, because they couldn't get to him. And Luke tells this in Luke 5. Matthew tells this in Matthew 9. And in each one of those tellings, Luke and Matthew tell you they tried. So they have this man on a a cot, and they're carrying this paralyzed man around. They try to go through the door. They're not allowed in. They can't get him through a window. They ask people, would you move out? This is important. And nobody will move, and they can't get to him. There's frustration. Verse 4. They made an opening in the roof above. Someone had an idea. I want to pause this. Ladies, because your best friends in life really love you and care for you, you're probably not going to understand what I'm about to say, but I think most men in this room would. Gentlemen, if you were paralyzed and you thought of your four best friends, would you really trust them to lower you by ropes through a roof? No, see? Why are all the guys laughing? Because our guys would drop us for YouTube, wouldn't they? This is what men do. So there is a great deal of faith in one another. 
they decide they're going to go up on the roof. Now, most houses at that time would have a flat roof, and there would be a stairway up to the top because they used that upper top when it was hot or in the cool of the night. They stored things up there. This is what they did. They decided they would just go up there. There would be beams that would support the frame of the house, and there would just be mud and hay and thatch that they could tear through to get to. So they carry him to the house above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. It's pretty amazing. I want you to imagine now, this guy has no control. He, he can't stop himself from falling if they make a mistake. And so they lower this man swinging down on these ropes above the crowd. And then it says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, that's an intense line. He saw their faith? How do you see faith? He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. What? That would be like me fighting through the crowd to get to Jesus, and Jesus said, my son, here's a comb. (laughs) Thank you? I have no reason to have a comb. And this guy comes down, he's swinging, he's paralyzed, he's going to Jesus, and Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, because he saw his faith. And most of us, at the core of who we are, we think faith is an idea. I believe Jesus can heal me. That's not faith. The house was full of people who thought Jesus could heal, but none of them were being what? Healed. They were still there. If if they really were healed by showing their faith, the the house would have been open. There have been people more leaving healed than staying around wanting Jesus to do something. And he said, son, your sins are forgiven. This is the first mention of faith in the Gospel of Mark. He saw their faith. You see, faith requires you to do something. We'll talk about that in a little bit. If you've been betrayed by teachers who say faith is simply believing God is able, Satan knows God's able, but he doesn't follow a word he says. The authority of Jesus has to be placed on who he is, not what he can do. And herein lies that great moment What did Jesus see in them? He saw something, because while the crowd around him wasn't healed, this man was going to be. So we have the scene, we have the action, now we have the reaction. And here's a statement I want to make. His authority is unlimited where there is faith. That's the crux of today's teaching. But when I look at that statement, which remains on that screen, I believe in half of that statement. Because here's what I know. His authority is unlimited, period. He's God for crying out loud. He doesn't become less God. But when Jesus is here on earth, you'll notice throughout the scriptures, where there is no faith, there is no healing, no miracles. Jesus has limited himself to the level of our faith. Which is a frightening proposition. Because I can even show you in Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes to his hometown and he preaches in the synagogue and they don't like what he says so they try to kill him. And it says that Jesus could not perform miracles there except for a few isolated healings because they had no faith. So faith matters. Faith changes it all. Verse 6 and 7. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there. Stop, that irritates me. And since I have a microphone, I get to share what irritates me. There are sick people who can't get in the building and these arrogant religious leaders are sitting there taking up seats that should be given to those who need them. But oh no, they're sitting there while everyone else is standing, crammed in doorways and windows. 
And there they sit in their arrogance. And they were thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this is the moment Mark wants us at. They're sitting there, not saying a word, and they're saying to themselves, who does he think he is? He's acting like he's God for crying out loud. And that's the point of Mark's story. He is either God or he's blaspheming. And this is what Mark wants us to take from this moment. The reaction is to be our reaction as well as theirs. There's no middle ground. They ask the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? I'm going to paint a story. It didn't happen. But let's say Monday, last Monday, I came walking down here because I left something in the room. And after staff meeting, I came down here and I heard an argument going on in here. And I came in here and Isaac and Elijah, there are two worship leaders, the two hairy ones, right? Beards, (laughs) real hair, flowing, all that good stuff. Good looking guys, talented. I come in here and Isaac and Elijah are having a scrap. They're arguing. And before I can say a word, Elijah punches Isaac right in the mouth. And Isaac turns around and his lips bleeding and I walk right up to Elijah and I say, Elijah, I forgive you for what you just did. Now we're just going to move on. Everything's great. You think Isaac might have a problem with that. But I'm the senior minister. I mean, in a, in a certain kind of way, I'm their boss. So I can simply use my authority. Can I? Absolutely not. Isaac is the only one who can forgive Elijah. I can fire Elijah, but only Isaac can forgive him. Because my authority as my role here has nothing to do with the reality that the forgiveness can only come from the one who's been sinned against. Stop. Let's go back to our story. When Jesus said, I forgive you, the only one who can forgive him is the one he wronged. Uh-oh. They're asking themselves, who does he think he is? And Jesus rips open his shirt and it doesn't say Superman, it says God. And some of us have wondered, why did he do the forgiveness with the healing? Why didn't he just heal him? Because it's not just what Jesus can do. It's who he is that gives him his power. And therein, Mark has us exactly where we need to be. You see, in verse 6, it says, now some teachers were thinking to themselves, they hadn't even said it. If you've been married, oh, an hour, you can look at your spouse sometimes and read their mind. If you've dated at all, it doesn't even take that long. I'll look across the room and I'll look at Heather and go, what? And she'll go, nothing. Oh, I can hear her eyes roll. I've developed the ability. I know when deep inside she's going, oh, why did I marry him? I know that. I've been with her long enough. I get it. She didn't have to say a word. I can read her just because I've been with her enough to know what sets her off. And, you know, we laugh there. Sometimes she's disappointed in me and there's other times she's like, oh, you're never going to change. It's that sense, and it says that Jesus, verse 8, immediately, remember that's a key word for Mark, this didn't take time, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Now I want to pause here before we jump by that verse, remember this important moment. If you're sitting there on a park bench thinking, who does this guy think he is, and without saying a word, that guy looks at you, and you've never met him before, and he looks at you, and he goes, here's why I'm saying what I'm saying, would you go, oh, Maybe he's not a blasphemer. Maybe this is the real deal. Because they would know, 1 Corinthians 28, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. They're asking who can forgive sins but God alone. In verse 9, Jesus said, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? 
My response is neither is easy. Both is supernatural, which is, again, where we need to be. Do you remember that in Jesus' day, the Jewish teachers often taught that if a person was sick, it was because of what? Sin. And if you don't know that, that was a common teaching. The way to explain suffering was a way, if you go to the book of Job, the way you explain suffering away was simply say, you've done something horribly wrong you won't admit to, and so you're suffering for this, and until you confess it, God's going to punish you, and that's not true. So Jesus uses their own logic against them here. He said, okay, so if you think he's paralyzed because he's a sinner, which would be more difficult, to take away the sin or to take away the punishment of the sin, which is really the same thing, isn't it? So he says to him, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. Sometimes certain things just catch my attention. I love the fact that they wouldn't allow him to walk in, but when he turned to walk out, they parted their way. Something big had just happened, and everybody in the house knew it. But I want to tell you this. Jesus gives three distinct commands. Get up. He'd never done that before. Would that take faith? Pick up your mat. He'd never picked up his mat. People did it for him. Walk out. Whoa. Get up. Take up. Walk out. He'd never done any of those things before. So I have a question for you. This just fascinates me. Maybe it won't. Maybe it will. Just see what you do with it. What if he didn't believe he could? Where would the paralyzed man be today? Paralyzed. But because of the authority of Jesus... Because he knew who Jesus was. And that's what Jesus saw when he was lowered down. Because Jesus knew who he was. He said, you believe my authority? I'm going to make this happen by my words. The same words that spoke the universe into existence. I'm going to tell you, get up, take up, and walk out. And the Bible simply, Mark goes, and he did. Got up, took up, walked out. And Luke and Matthew both record, he praised God on the way out. Faith requires action. Because you know who Jesus is, not just you know what he can do. Verse 12. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Duh. Of course you haven't. And we look at verse 12, and we expect it to be this wonderful Disney ending to the moment, but let me tell you the distinction. They were amazed, but they did not believe. Jesus didn't come to amaze you, impress you, wow you. He came to show you who he was so you could believe beyond your amazement. You see, everybody in the room went, yay, awesome. But they didn't know who he was. Matthew says in Matthew chapter 9, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. That last word in verse 8 makes me sad. They thought, yay, God's working through this guy instead of saying, this guy's God. And I wonder if it isn't a challenge for all of us to get beyond Jesus is capable to understand he's capable because he's God. He's not just a healer. He's Lord of the universe. And that was the challenge. They were amazed that he was God, that a man could do this. To them, he was still just a man instead of the man who came to set it all in in order. I want you to notice 
that later in Jesus' ministry, he would send his disciples out and he would say, heal people, and they did. Cast out demons, and they did. Preach the kingdom is here, and they did. But Jesus never sent them out to forgive sins. That was his prerogative. Because Elijah punching Isaac in the mouth doesn't give me the authority to take that away. Sorry, Elijah. The the reality is, only Isaac can forgive Elijah. And only the one we sin against can forgive our sins. So Jesus sent his disciples out. He said, proclaim my kingdom. But his death on the cross, this king who came to the cross in a relentless pursuit is the only one who can take away our greatest need, our unforgiven sin. And so in that moment, Jesus reserved the right to say, I can heal your body and I can heal your soul. And he did. And then he said, go home. Go live your life in your healing. Go live your life with testimony. Tell people who did this for you. Not just what was done, but who did this. This will always be about Jesus. His relentless pursuit was to fix our greatest need. His relentless pursuit was to die on the cross to do that. And our relentless pursuit is to lift up the name of Jesus Christ and to believe. There are people in this room who are physically hurting today. And you think that because you don't have enough faith that you've not been healed. If you only tried harder or thought better or did more, you could be healed. Be careful. God's power is limitless where there is faith. But that doesn't mean that God's a genie in a lamp, that if we act like we have enough faith, he's obligated to take care of us. Do you have enough faith in a God who might answer no? Do you have enough faith in a God that might answer yes? Because what we bring to the table is a belief that God could heal every one of us right now if he so chooses. But I also have enough faith to say that if God doesn't do what I want him to do, he's no less God. There's a greater reason, purpose behind it. Can you do that? For some of us, if you want to just turn this story into an allegory, some of us need to carry some of our friends into the presence of Christ. And some of us need help getting to Jesus. But when you arrive there, do you know who he is? And are you willing to accept his lordship above all things? At the end of this service, uh, some of our elders and myself will be out in the foyer by the tables where it says prayer needs. Some of you are struggling physically, emotionally, your, your marriage relationships, your things going on. Some of you are fighting through shame and sin that's unconfessed. Your greatest need is to deal with your unresolved sin. And if you want someone to pray with you this morning and encourage you to help you on this journey, there are going to be people out there that are willing to carry you on your mat and get you into the presence of Christ because we believe that God is able all the time. Now we submit our faith and trust his timing. Amen? Let's stand together and worship. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.